0: Our Father, we need this morning a word of encouragement. We need a word of hope. We need a word to remind us of your steadfastness, your faithfulness, your unending commitment to your promises. For as we think about the salvation plan, and as we think about how that salvation plan had come to Israel, and as we think about Israel's rejection of Christ... It elicits all kinds of questions about your plans and your purposes, your faithfulness and the security of our salvation. And as we embark on a study of this new passage, would you, would you give us understanding, clarity, accuracy with the text as we look at it and examine it and would you... Would You give us transformation in our hearts and would You give us encouragement? Oh, Father, we need the encouragement of Your Word today. And would You give that to us? And would You sustain us by this Word? And would You compel our ministry through this Word? We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. What makes you sad? What makes your heart ache? What are your greatest sorrows? My guess is that there's a common list that most of us have, a a list of things that, that would make most of us sad. For instance, the illness of a loved family member or perhaps cancer or a terminal disease in a child. I remember when Emily was younger and we were going regularly to Cook's Hospital to get treatment for her hearing impairment. I'd often feel sad thinking about various things related to Emily and her condition until I would get to the hospital and then I would see children being wheeled around in uh, wagons and children with IV bottles and bald-headed children who are obviously um, undergoing cancer treatment and think they're children in a much worse condition and children whose, whose situation is much more precarious. And, and I never left that hospital, without feeling a sense of tremendous sadness and sorrow for those who are undergoing such great difficulty. Maybe your heart is broken by unreconciled relationships, things that you have pursued, relationships that you have desired to see brought back together and, and they remain broken. Perhaps you are sad over civil injustice, foolish and ungodly decisions by our court system. Or perhaps you're broken over cultural rejection of morality and you can pick virtually any kind of topic here for for the pervasiveness of cultural immorality is vast. Where does the rejection of the gospel fit on that list of sad things for you? When people have heard the gospel and reject it, does that grieve you? When people should know the gospel and and have been exposed to the gospel and should embrace the gospel because they've heard it clearly spoken and they reject it anyway, does that grieve you? How badly do you want sinners to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior? Does your heart break for irreligious religious people? Or does your heart break for unbelieving religious people? Specifically, do you grieve over the people of Israel, God's chosen people? And and what does their unbelief say to us about God's relationship with us? We, We ask the question as we see Israel's unbelief, has the gospel failed? Or even more, has God been unfaithful to His promise to bring Israel into salvation for for they yet reject Him? As we open Romans chapter 9, there is a dramatic shift in tone. The end of Romans chapter 8 is joyous and victorious. It's, it's a benediction of praise as, as Paul finishes thinking about God's salvation plan and thinking about sanctification and, and the work of the Spirit to produce sanctification in us. And Romans chapter 9 follows that with no transition word, no transition phrase, but frankly it, it is a blunt statement of grief. And it seems that, that this chapter and everything that follows it is, is disharmonious with everything that has preceded it. What, and we, we've got to ask the question, what is Paul doing? What is, what is Paul addressing? And what he is doing is he, is he is helping us to grapple with a question that certainly would have been on the mind of his Roman readers. Romans eight is victorious. Romans eight is uh, glorious. Romans chapter eight is a wondrous declaration of of God's work in the life of the believer. But astute readers will remember that that this book is an explanation of the gospel. It's God, it's, it's Paul's unfolding of his gospel beliefs, and that is integrally tied to the Israelites. So go back to chapter one. And just consider chapter 1, verse 2. Speaking about the gospel of God, he says, which He promised, which God promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, so what were the scriptures that the nation of Israel or the world had at that point but, but the Old Testament? And in the Old Testament, the prophets had talked about the coming of the gospel through the Messiah. So... So the first recipients of the gospel message were the Israelites. And, and this gospel message, verse three, chapter one, is concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So, so not only is the gospel announced to Israel first, but it comes through the nation of Israel and through the Davidic line. So it, it is integrally a message from Israel for Israel to Israel. In fact, that's what the apostle says in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. It comes to the Jews. It it comes to those who have been chosen by God, it comes to God's chosen people. And and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness verse 17 of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. So this gospel is coming, and and how to appropriate this gospel, Paul goes back to the book of Habakkuk and quotes from Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet to explain how it is that the gospel is received. So the gospel is rooted in an understanding that it was given first to the Israelites and, and first to the Jews. The gospel is inextricably intertwined with Israel and God's promises to Israel. And Israel rejected Christ. They didn't just reject Christ, they mocked him, they scourged him, they crucified him, they killed him. They wanted nothing to do with the Messiah. Israel wanted nothing to do with the one who had come as the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the twelve sons of Jacob. And then the promises made to Moses and David and Jeremiah. And they have rejected all of it and all of those promises have gone unfulfilled. They, they have not been fulfilled in the nation of Israel. Israel has remained in unbelief and is still in unbelief today. Israel should have believed she was God's chosen nation. She, she had unsurpassed rights and privileges and yet she did not believe, she would not believe. And, and there are some unspoken questions because of that the readers would say this is is a gospel that is designed for the Israelites and as glorious and magnanimous and wonderful as it is and what happened to Israel? And, And if Israel is now off the table what does that do to us? If Israel did not believe what will happen to her ultimately? What will happen to those of us who are not? part of God's chosen nation? Will God save us? Will God keep us? Or is our future as uncertain as Israel's seems to be? These are the kinds of questions that the Apostle is anticipating and that he will answer in Romans 9 to 11. And as we look at this opening section in Romans chapter 9 this morning, we're going to find Paul addressing One primary question, when the gospel appears to fail, has God failed? It looks like the gospel has failed because Israel has not come to salvation. The the gospel was promised to them and they've rejected Christ. They've walked away from Christ. They've crucified Christ. Is Is this a massive, epic fail on God's part? And will salvation fail because of that? Will the gospel fail in us, or will we be kept? And underneath this question, Paul has three underlying longings, three underlying longings that that drive Paul's thinking in this opening section. The first of these longings is given to us contextually. It's given to us throughout all of these three chapters. It is the longing for security, the longing for gospel security It's the question, is God faithful? Is God faithful? And when we come to Romans chapter 9, as we've already noted, there is a dramatic shift. Romans 8 is celebratory joy. Romans 9 seems to be a funeral dirge and a massive lament. Paul's tone changes in this section. But along with his tone, there are other transitions that take place also in Romans 9 to 11. For instance, the, the emphasis on the Godhead changes in Romans 9 to 11. So, you'll remember, we have talked multiple number of times, that in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is named 20 times by name. So, so Romans chapter 8 is all about the work of the Spirit to produce sanctification in the life of the believer. In Romans chapters 9 to 11, the Spirit of God is named once. It's like it's like the spirit virtually disappears in these chapters. After this, after this glorious mountaintop experience of revelation about the spirit of God, now the spirit of God seems to almost disappear in these chapters. In Romans one to eight, in the first eight chapters, Jesus Christ is mentioned by name fifty-eight times. So, almost seven times in each chapter, or a little bit over on average, seven times in each chapter, Jesus is named. In Romans 9 to 11, he's named a total of seven times. Again, it seems the Christ's role is significantly diminished in these chapters. In Romans 1 to 8, God is mentioned by name 108 times. And in Romans 9 to 11, he's named 25 times. And so there's a shift from the work of the Spirit and the work of of, the, of, of uh, Christ in producing and sanctifying our salvation to a contemplation of God and, the, and God the Father in His role in our salvation to sovereignly lead us to salvation. So the emphasis in the Godhead changes, moving from Christ in the Spirit to God the Father. The writing style also changes in Romans 9 to 11. In Romans 9 to 11, the name Jew only appears two times, while Israel is mentioned 11 times. In fact, Israel is not mentioned by that name Israel until you get to Romans chapter 9, and we'll see that in verse 5. That's the first time Romans 9 uh, verse 4 rather, is the first time that the nation of Israel is mentioned by name. Previously, every time Paul talks about them, he refers to them by their racial identity as Jews. And this is a subtle shift, but it's a significant shift because the apostle is de-emphasizing their race and their culture, and he is emphasizing their nationality and their identity with God as a covenantal people. He's focusing on the fact that God has given a covenant to this people called Israel. In addition to this, the concept of mercy dominates these chapters. The verb mercy, or to be merciful, appears seven times in these chapters, but only once in the rest of the book. So so it's as if these chapters focus on God's merciful activity to bring us to salvation And and the concept of mercy is just almost absent in the rest of the book. In fact, it's been suggested that mercy is the key word of these chapters. For instance, we find this in 9.15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs but on God who has mercy. So then He has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He has desires. In other words, God is sovereign over His salvation. He brings those whom He has chosen to salvation, and that is an act of mercy on His part. He'll emphasize the same thing in chapter 11, verse 30, "...for just as you once were disobedient to God..." but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Israelites' disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that He may show mercy to all. God is a merciful God, even in His sovereign activity to produce salvation. This is an act of mercy. The Old Testament also dominates these chapters. I've noted previously that... There are sixty three quotations from the Old Testament in the Book of Romans, and as we come to Romans nine to eleven there are thirty three quotations from the Old Testament in these chapters you are You are going to grow weary of going back to the Old Testament in these chapters Some of you some of you are actually going to learn all of the books of the Old Testament in order in order to be able to keep up with me as we keep going back to the Old Testament if you 've not memorized them now 's the time because the Old Testament is coming in these sections. And with that emphasis, what Paul is doing is he is affirming the ongoing plan of God for the nation of Israel. That, that his plan that was revealed in the Old Testament has not changed, that the gospel that was revealed in the Old Testament has not changed, and that salvation that comes to the Gentiles through the nation of Israel has not changed. This is nothing new that he is teaching. It was established and affirmed in the Old Testament. And these changes in style and these changes in structure help reveal a persistent question in these verses and throughout these chapters. Is the gospel secure? And is God faithful? Because with all of these things that are going on in these chapters about the nation of Israel, there are unspoken questions about God and Israel in these chapters. This change in style, this change in structure, this change in focus is designed to reveal... The, the 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 change in emphasis that Paul is making and 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 for him to expose the questions that had to be on the Romans minds if the gospel of Jesus Christ offered salvation to all gentiles then has god forsaken his chosen people israel the the gospel came first to the jew but now since the gospel is going to the gentiles and in fact, Paul is wanting to take it further to the Gentiles. Remember in chapter 15, he says he wants to go to Spain. That's, that's Gentile country. And, and if Paul is going to the Gentiles and the gospel is expanding to the Gentiles, what has happened to the Jew? Have they lost their advantage that he talked about in chapter 3 verse 1? Has God failed them? And, and if salvation is from the Jews, and if salvation is to the jews why did israel and her religious leaders reject the messiah from being their king and savior why why did the israelites harden their hearts paul talks about this in chapter 11 verse 7 what then what then what what israel is seeking it has not obtained but those who were chosen obtained it and the and the rest were hardened just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. They've, they've rejected. Then it seems that God even had a hand in that rejection of him. Has God just... Has God just wiped the Israelites out of His plan? Has He forsaken His plan for Israel? Yes, God has saved individual Jews through Christ. Paul was one of those. But what about the plan to save the nation? Did did God discard His salvation plan for the nation of Israel? He he talks about the fact in 11.19 and following that That they were like branches of a tree that were broken off. He says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I, the Gentile, might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. So has God just given up on Israel? Has God said, that's it, I'm done. I know the promise I made, but they're, they're out of the plan. I've broken them off. I'm done. And friends, here's the real question. If God did not keep His salvation plan with Israel, then can we Gentiles be secure in the salvation plan that he has for us if if israel isn't saved and israel is god's special chosen people then what's going to happen to us who are not part of his chosen people is is there a place for us in his plan and at the heart at the heart of those questions at the heart of these 3 chapters is the question about god's faithfulness is God-faithful. Paul's anticipating these questions and... And these chapters exude God's faithfulness, and I don't, I don't want you to walk. I don't want you to walk out of here this morning with with a question: Is God faithful? I want you to see some of the things that the apostle says. So, notice, for instance, chapter eleven, verse one: "I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? Here's the question: Has God has God cut off Israel? Has He rejected them? May it never." be. May that never come to life. May that never be the situation. May it may it never be said that God was unfaithful to his covenant. Chapter eleven, verse eleven. I say then Similar kind of question. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, they, they didn't stumble in their progression towards the Messiah in such a way that they fell fa- finally and fatally so that, so that there's no possibility of coming to God. Again, notice verse 11. May it never be, may, may this never come to pass. May this never be true. He continues this same theme of God's faithfulness to Israel. Verse 22, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, it is severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, watch this, they also, Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. God God can bring them to salvation. Now skip down to verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. God's not given up on his plan. God will bring them to salvation as a nation just as it is written, verse 26, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers as God looks at them their beloved, for the sake of the keeping of the promises that He made to the fathers, to the patriarchs of Israel. Is God faithful? Oh yes, friend. He is eternally faithful. As as Paul sells, says elsewhere, God is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. He, he must be faithful to Himself. He must be faithful to His Word. He must be faithful to His integrity. He cannot do anything but be faithful. He is God. He must be faithful. And He must be faithful to who He is and what He says. And so, underneath... These three chapters, there is a longing for gospel security. Are we safe in this gospel? And Paul longs for us to know the safety of the gospel and God's faithfulness. There's another longing that undergirds what is happening in this section. It's given to us in verses 1 to 3. It is the longing for gospel growth. It is the longing for gospel growth. And here Paul is essentially asking the question, is the gospel powerful? Is the gospel powerful? And, and Paul in a moment is about to say something that is going to sound preposterous. It is, it is the greatest kind of absurdity of what he is going to say. So he, anticipating what he is going to say, asserts to his readers the validity of the coming statement, and he does so in three ways in, in verse 1. Notice he says in verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. And notice he doesn't just say, I'm about to say something that sounds really bizarre, but I'm telling the truth. He does say that, but notice he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. That means that his words have been conformed to his position in Christ. He is a truth teller because of his union with Christ. His his words are carefully chosen to reflect the character of Christ and his accountability to Christ. He He is compelled to be a truth teller because of his relationship with Christ. His relationship with Christ drives and orders his words. He can't do anything but be a truth teller. And then, having stated positively, I'm telling the truth, he he states the same thing in a negative way. I'm telling the truth in Christ. That's the affirmation. And then the denial. I am not lying. I, I would not lie to you. I cannot lie to you. I cannot lead you astray. I am not lying. One commentator says this about Paul's words. A man... Even a truthful man may exaggerate his own feelings. But in the eyes of Paul, there is something so holy in Christ that in the, that in the pure and luminous atmosphere of His felt presence, no lie, not even any exaggeration is possible. I, I cannot lie. I must tell the truth. I am compelled to tell the truth. I am telling the truth. And in fact, he then appeals even further and says, "I, my conscience testifies with me. And you'll remember from chapter 2 that it is the function of the conscience to affirm or accuse individuals of their actions, their character, their words, their thoughts. And this is something that is common to all people. So everyone has a conscience. Not, not everyone has the law of God that they can hold in their hands But the Apostle says everyone has the law of God that has been given to them internally. So they they understand the morality of God in a very basic way. So he says in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is they don't have the written law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In other words, when they do the law, when they obey the law, they do moral things. It demonstrates that they have the law inside themselves, in that, verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So God has transcribed the essence of the law in the heart of every individual. And the function of that transcription of the law is, verse 15 of chapter 2, it, it is bearing witness, so it's testifying to them, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So so every action, every thought, every word is constantly being evaluated by the conscience. Is this right or is this wrong? Are you walking in truthfulness? Are you walking in untruthfulness? Are you righteous or are you unrighteous? And the apostle in chapter 9 is saying, My conscience is testifying with me that I'm right. But notice he doesn't just say my conscience testifies with me, but he says my conscience testifies with me in the holy spirit. And so not all consciences are right, not all consciences are are pure, not all consciences consciences um, accord themselves with God's word, so you can you can kill your conscience. Paul says in in First Timothy chapter four, you can cauterize your conscience, you can sear your conscience, you can cut off your conscience, and so that if you are an evil man bent on evil deeds, you can you can so conform your life to deeds of evil and the things that you are taking in and the things you are meditating on, your conscience no longer no, no longer works correctly. And the apostle says. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit has been feeding my conscience. The Holy Spirit, by His Word, has been instructing my conscience. The Holy Spirit, by His Word, has been conforming my conscience. And I'm telling you that what I'm about to tell you is the truth. My conscience affirms that. And with these three statements, Paul is affirming that what he desires is a true statement. The thing that he is longing for really is true. This is no no exaggeration. This is no hyperbole. This is his longing. And he does have a longing. That's verse 2. The the truthfulness having been affirmed of what he's going to say, he indicates where it is coming from. And it's, it's this deep... Sorrow, great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart that's compelling him. This, this great sorrow is, is a state of mind. It's, it's not just that he has a passing sorrow and it's like, well, I'm sad today, but tomorrow I'll be fine. No, it's this, it's the sorrow that has come into his life, entered his life, and it is persistently stayed in his life. And, and it's a great sorrow. It's a massive sorrow. It's a large sorrow. It's not, it's not some small thing that is persistent, not some nagging thing that is with within, but, but it's a life-altering kind of a sorrow. And what's interesting is that as Paul uses this word sorrow, he says, I have a great sorrow. That word sorrow is used differently by some of the other New Testament writers, but whenever Paul uses the word sorrow, it's always in connection to spiritual loss. So something has been lost spiritually. Someone, someone has died in unbelief or someone has rejected the gospel or someone is walking in rebellion. It always has to do with the sorrow that comes from spiritual loss and spiritual lack of integrity. And he says not just I have a great sorrow, but he says I have an unceasing grief. Here he's here's talking about the inward pain of his anguish and the fact that it is Unending. Paul's sorrow, one writer says, is marked by its greatness, its continuance, and its depth. Now the question is, just what could produce such great sorrow in Paul's heart? He's yearning for something that he lacks. What's what's the one thing that's so compelling to him that he can shift in such a massive way from chapter 8 to what he's talking about now in chapter 9? It is simply, he longs for the salvation of the Jewish people. Is that all? Really, it, all this for the salvation of the Israelites? Oh, friend, this is this is no passing passion of his. This is the consummation of his longing not only for the peoples of the world to come to know Christ, but for His people to come to know Christ. He he wants the expansion of the gospel in every place, but He particularly wants the expansion of the gospel with the nation of Israel. So He'll say very similarly to the first verse in chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I want... Israel to know Christ. Verse 18 chapter 10. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, "I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation." By a nation without understanding, will I anger you? So Moses says, no, they don't believe, but there's going to be Gentiles that are going to be given this salvation in order to make them jealous, to produce salvation in them. And Isaiah, verse 20, is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands... To a disobedient and obstinate people, God has been continually, all day long, exposing the truth of the gospel to the nation of Israel, who is obstinate in their rebellion against Him. And even as God has presented the gospel to the nation of Israel, that's what Paul wants. He wants them to be saved. And just how badly, just how badly does He want them to be saved? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. I could almost pray to be cursed by God to produce their salvation. That that word curse is the word anathema. It's a word that denotes the experience of the condemnation and the wrath of God. It It is the outpouring of God's wrath against those who are in rebellion against Him And, and Paul says, I, I could almost wish, I could almost pray that I myself would be accursed. And in case we, in case we miss what he's saying, he adds another phrase, I could wish myself accursed, separated from Christ. That is, to be accursed is to be separate from Christ. To be accursed is to be disunified with Christ, ununified with Christ. To be, to be accursed is to have no blessing of fellowship and union in eternity or elsewhere with Christ. There's no, there's no union with Him now and there's no union with Him in glory. And friends, Paul says this about the Christ of whom he will say in other places, for me to live is Christ. Christ is his life. He can't live for anything but Christ. Christ, Christ is what compels him. Christ is his longing. He wants nothing more to be with Christ. He says, I, I want to, in Philippians, he says, I want to go with to Christ now, but, but I know it's to your benefit for me to stay, so I'll stay, but I really want to be with Christ. Christ was everything to Paul. And here he says, if I would never experience the blessing of Christ and only His wrath, if that would produce salvation for Israel, bring it on. Now, he's not saying that it could produce salvation. But he says, if it would, that's what I want. He seems to be doing something similar to what Moses did in Exodus chapter 32. Remember the situation with the golden calf? Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, gets the law from God. Aaron and the Israelites say, where's Moses? He's been gone a long time. I guess he's never coming back. We need a God, so let's let's make a God. And so they fashion the golden calf. God tells Moses of their rebellion, sends Moses back down the mountain. Moses exposes it. And then it says, Exodus 32:31. Then Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. In other words, would you forgive them? And if you won't forgive them, will you not forgive me as a means to getting forgiveness for them? Would you blot me out so they might be saved? It's similar to what David will say about his son Absalom in First Samuel chapter 18. But neither Moses nor David nor Paul had an ability to receive this curse that would provide substitutionary atonement for the people of Israel. But there is one who does have the ability to stand in another's place and He not only says, I could pray that, but He in essence says, I do pray that. Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ could become a curse that could remove our sin. It was a curse for us. Paul said, I, I would pray that if I could, but I can't. But Christ did. And Christ did for the nation of Israel and for us. And Paul longs for them to know that. Notice the end of verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ. Not just separated from Christ, but separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. And to make sure that we understand, he's not talking about brothers in Christ. He says, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, that is... Those who have the same physical heritage as me. And then he'll expand it even more precisely in verse 4. Who are Israelites? This is, this is all about my desire for Israel to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Now friend, we need to ask a question at this point. How badly do you long for the salvation of the lost? Do we care that the unbelieving really are going to hell? Do we care that people we know, people that live beside us, people that work beside us, people that live with us, are lost? And lost means eternally lost. And lost means eternally under God's wrath. Do we care Do we care? John Knox said, Give me Scotland or I die. Henry Martin, a missionary to India, said, Oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of God. C.T. Studd wrote, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell said Charles Spurgeon, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled in the teeth of our our exertions, let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. My friend, the end of all people who don't know Jesus Christ will end badly. And and that is not nearly strong enough, is it? It will end disastrously. We we have no ability to comprehend just how bad and how disastrous hell is, but 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 we need to work we need to work at it. In fact, this week as I was studying this passage, my mind went back to a book that sat on my desk for about a year and then I moved it to a shelf. I've I've even even had a bookmark in chapter 1 and it sat there for about a year and a half unread. And I thought about that book this week and I said, I've got to read that book. And so one, one afternoon as I was heading home, I grabbed that book off the shelf and I threw it in my book bag and went home. And we had dinner and got a few things done and then I sat down to read... And I was reading in my chair, and Regine was walking through the living room and saw me reading, and she said, what are you reading? Pretty common question in our house. What are you reading? What are you, what are you looking at? And I held up the book for her to see the cover of the book, and it's entitled, A Visitor's Guide to Hell. I need to know what hell is like. I need to know the pervasiveness of hell. I need to know the tragedy of hell. I need to know the horror of hell. So that I can have the same kind of pleadings as the Apostle Paul has for those who don't know Christ, so that they will come to know Christ as their Savior. And friend, because of, because of this truth about what hell is and the lostness of God's people, We need to be not only feeding our understanding of what hell is like and what heaven is like, but we need to be reinforcing in our minds what the gospel is so that at any moment we can dispense the gospel so that so that people will hear the truth of the gospel from our lips. If you fall out of bed at four in the morning, I ought to be able to ask you the question if I'm in the room, and that would be kind of weird, but I need to be able to ask the question, what's the gospel? And you say, Pastor, it's grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope... The gospel in six words. It's the grace of God. It's the sin of man. It's the plan of God. It's the gift of Christ. It's made available through faith and it gives us the hope of eternity. That's the gospel. Pastor, it's substitution. Christ died for us. Man, that ought to just roll off your tongue so that, so that you have an opportunity to share that truth with someone so that they can be redeemed from hell. Are you praying for those who need to know the gospel? Do you have a place in your prayer journal where you have lists of names of people who don't know Christ? And are you not only praying for those, but are you praying for those of us who have relationships with those people so that we can be bold? You know, it's interesting. Paul says, I could pray that I myself was accursed for the sake of the gospel. Yet that same apostle wrote this in Ephesians chapter 6. Pray on my behalf, verse 19, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the bold, with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm, amb- I'm an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I might speak boldly as I ought to speak twice. In those verses... He says, pray for me to have boldness. And the inference is, I don't have boldness. This same apostle who longs for Israel so badly to come to Christ that he would be willing to condemn himself if he could, says, I need boldness. Oh, friends, we need boldness. Are you you praying for each other to have boldness with the gospel, with those people who are in our lives? need to remind ourselves of what the gospel is we need to pray for others to be bold we need to pray for people to come to know Christ Paul would have been willing to consign himself to hell if others would come to Christ that way how extreme are you and I willing to be so that others will come to know Christ what absurd thing will you do will you be willing to consider so that someone who's in your life who doesn't know Christ might come to know him that's Paul's longing paul longs for the gospel to grow he longs for the gospel to expand particularly with his nation of with the nation of israel that's verses 4 and 5 the longing for the gospel of israel he has is brought up those who share his nationality with him. And having thought about the nation of Israel and their nationality, he, he then thinks about the advantages that Israel had. And in verses 4 and 5, he reveals nine advantages of Israel, nine advantages of the nation, who are the Israelites Again, this is the first time the apostle uses this term in Romans and and to call them Israelites means that he's not emphasizing their cultural distinctions with the Gentiles. He's not saying Jew and Gentile as in cultural distinctions, but he's talking about a nation that has a relationship with God and God's promises that have been given to them. It's not just a national designation. It's it's a spiritual designation that, that they are connected to God through the covenants. They are secondly adopted as sons. This is, this is similar to what he talks about in chapter 8. So he says in, in, in chapter 8, verse 15, we, we believers in Christ have a spirit of adoption as sons. Verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So we, we as believers are brought into God's family. But but it's not just we who've been brought into God's family. First, the nation of Israel was brought into God's family. God, God adopted them and made them to be His sons. That, That's alluded to numerous times in the Old Testament. But let me just draw your attention to one. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9. God says through the prophet's hand, "...with weeping they will come." And by supplication, I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. They they have special status as God's sons. They are protected and kept and blessed. They not only are adopted as sons, but they have the glory This refers to the Shekinah glory of God that filled both the tabernacle and the temple. So God came and filled the tabernacle and they saw the outshining of the radiance of God. They saw... The manifestation of God in a way that no other country, no other nation ever did. And not only did they have, see the, the outshining, the manifestation of God's perfect glory, but it also was a glory that was meant to comfort them. I am with you. You can approach me, you can come to the temple, and you can worship, and I am there. You can, you can come to the tabernacle, and as you are making your way through the wilderness, and as you make your way into the land, I will be with you. It's a comfort. They saw the glory, and they received further in verse 4, the covenants. Paul doesn't specify which covenants he's talking about. He's probably talking about the Abrahamic for sure, and undoubtedly the things that flowed from the Abrahamic covenants, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. But but even more than that, I think what the Apostle Paul is pointing to is the permanence of the covenants. So he says in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 16, he says, "...now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed and he does not say and to seeds as referring to many but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ and what i'm saying is this the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a prom a covenant previously ratified by god so as to nullify the promise for if the inheritance is based on law it is no longer based on a promise But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So God gave Abraham the promise. The law came in, but the law did not invalidate the promise. The promise is still secure. He wants them to know. He wants them to remember they they had the unceasing, unending covenants. They, They also had the law, the law which which guided them, the law which directed them, the law which is a provision for them, the law which revealed the nature of God, the character of God, but, but the law which does something else as well. Listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, Deuteronomy 4 verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, the, this law, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statues and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? What nation is there that has received such grace as the nation of Israel has in receiving the law? The law is a gift of grace and love and nearness from God. They were entrusted further with temple service. That reminds them that after the years of wandering in the wilderness, they were brought permanently into the land and a a temple was constructed and they had the rights and privileges of leading the people into that temple for worship and not just the people of Israel, but by extension all of those who are in the rest of the earth as well. They were to be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. They have temple service and corporate worship and blessings that come from that. They received the end of verse 4, the promises. This isn't the covenants, but this is all of the other promises that God has given to the nation of Israel to demonstrate His faithfulness to them. They had eighth, verse 5, the fathers. They had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob And the twelve sons of Jacob. And and God was faithful to those fathers. And God used the fathers to reveal his faithfulness to his people. They're, They're beloved by God. The nation of Israel is beloved by God through the patriarchs. And everything that they would experience comes as blessing to God through the promises that were made to the patriarchs. And ninth, most of all and supremely, and from whom? is the Christ. Notice he doesn't say they possess Christ because the nation as a nation did not possess Christ. There were individuals that were saved among Israel, but the nation as a totality wasn't. They didn't have Christ, but Christ did come from them. And Christ came to them. And Christ came for them, first of all. This is a reminder as well that the privilege of Christ's revelation to them is permanent. Jesus is, was, and always will be an Israelite. Jesus always is a Jew. Jesus always came from them first, to them first. Notice how else the apostle identifies him. From whom is the Christ that is the Messiah according to the flesh. That is, He has a literal body and He was born like any other man and He had a physical heritage and a physical lineage. And friends, He had a body that was pinchable and touchable like yours and mine so that He could stand in our place. He was like us. A bull and a goat can't stand in our place because they are not like us. But Christ was. So He came According to the flesh, but not only that, notice also Paul says, who is over all. That is, he is sovereign over all creation and all man. And he is sovereign over all because, the end of verse 5, he is God blessed forever. He, he is God-man. He is man, yes, but he's also God and he is blessed as God forever. What can you say about these advantages? If Israel had all these advantages and they didn't repent, were they disinherited? Did God do away with them? Not to steal my thunder from next week, but look at verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. God's promise didn't fail, God didn't give up on Israel. God hasn't rejected Israel. He's not failed. His word hasn't failed. Chapter 11, verse 1, we saw something similar. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? Has God given up on Israel? May it never be. 11.1, 1, He is faithful to Israel He is faithful to them. He will keep His promises with them. there will be a time when the nation as a nation and a totality will be redeemed. And friend, because He's faithful to His promise to Israel, He's faithful to His promise to you for salvation. There's another reminder from these advantages as well. These affirmations of Israel's position are also reminders... That religious privilege is a wonderful advantage, but it's useless without faith in Christ. All the advantages did Israel no good as long as she rejected Christ. And, friend, if you are a rejecter of Christ today, it doesn't matter, it does not matter what your spiritual heritage is. It doesn't matter who your father was spiritually or who your mother was spiritually. It doesn't matter what your children are spiritually. What matters is you. And friend, you must repent. You must turn away from your sin and you must turn to embrace Christ. He'll say in chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You must embrace Christ as the master of the world and the master of the universe and the master of you, and confess your sin, and if you do, he will save you. He is a faithful God. Will you be, begin believing in him today? And if you do believe in him, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, as we come to this table of communion, give thanks for Christ's salvation of you and God's faithfulness to keep you in that salvation. Our Father, we thank You for reminders from this Word about our heart's tendency to question You and Your faithfulness. And we thank You that when we question that You are kind to reveal just how faithful you are. You have been, you are, and you will be faithful to Israel. You have been, you are, and you will be faithful to us as well. Father, cause us to walk in security of that salvation if we believe. And Father, if we do not believe, would you bring us to a point of repentance even this morning? We pray this in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen.